At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex. Of bugs. (laughs) Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Nyla Boodoo and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world, from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Freed, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. Hello, and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast at the intersection of bio, healthcare, and tech. I'm Olivia. And I'm Chris. Today's episode features A16Z Bio and Health General Partner Vijay Pandey in conversation with Zach Cohane, an MD-PhD who is the chair of the Department of Biomedical Informatics at Harvard Medical School. Vijay and Zach talked about having been through AI winters and hype cycles before and why they think this time could be different. They also talked about how AI could revolutionize the healthcare model. If you can actually have enough of the data of the patient, then you can focus on having a real customer oriented experience and sort of bring the patient relationship into the 21st century, where we expect basically consumer-facing companies to meet us in our home. I like to call this the flipped clinic. We learned that foundation models like AlphaFold can learn to speak the language of amino acids and therefore proteins. That has the potential to change how scientists discover and develop drugs on a surprisingly short time horizon. So that you're able to make early decisions about the drug that has the best structure, function, and kinetics uh, and affinity, as well as least likely to cause adverse events and have the most on-target effects. I think that is going to happen. I think not a matter of 10 to 20 years. It's more like three to seven years. So let's join Zach and Vijay as they discuss how AI could revolutionize healthcare and biology. You're listening to BioEats World from A16Z. So, Zach, thank you so much for joining us on BioEats World. Glad to be here. You've been working in AI plus healthcare since, in my understanding, since 1980s. And I think that really gives you a very unique position to think about how we got here, where we are now, and where we're going. Any lessons from the past that you think are important for us to be talking about now? On the one hand, there are a lot of similarities between the way we were talking about AI in the 1980s and the way we're talking about it now. It was going to revolutionize medicine. A lot of the talk about how we might revolutionize the nature of the medical profession and how doctors should rethink their position. And, and of course, it did not come to pass. And there's several reasons why One was we actually did not have enough clinical data, period. Electronic health records were not a thing yet. And the machine learning technology itself was still embryonic. And we didn't have the computational infrastructure to be able to work at scale. We were 
quite wed to this expert system model where the knowledge came more from human experts and there were all sorts of scaling problems with that. But when I asked myself six months ago, or maybe eight months ago, when I first learned about GPT-4, are we in the same kind of hype cycle? I concluded that we certainly are in a hype cycle, but not the same. And why is that? Well, first of all, for the better or the worse, OpenAI unleashed ChatGPT on the world. Mm -hmm. And the promise that we had for AI in medicine back in the 1980s was all promissory notes. Here we're already having patients and doctors independent of the healthcare system using uh, these large language models with all their flaws, all their known flaws, hallucinations, errors, not up to date, all that, despite all that, are being used by many doctors, by many patients. So there's already evidence that there's a there there. So that's number one. Number two is we also have a path that has shown scaling. So we have a lot of reasons to be much more positive. But there are some things that we can learn. And that is that even though we called it AI winter, there were some AI artifacts that actually survived in medicine. They were not particularly glamorous or particularly fancy, but they were at the very much at the heart of medicine. And those were programs to basically optimize billing and reimbursement. And those programs have been tweaked and continually optimized for the last 20 years easily. And so what we learned from that is that although we have these AI technologies and capabilities, the most obvious applications are to administrative uses. And that's all well and good because there's many important administrative use cases. But the danger is that these will come to essentially potentially nullify some of the good outcomes. So what do I mean by that? On the one hand, administratively speaking, getting much faster authorizations or denials, upcoding, downcoding, all that uh, happening on the cloud. And you could say, well, that's great, Zach, because doctors are feeling really burnt out because of all their uh, clerical and administrative tasks. And that is true. But looking back about the way the healthcare system works, it's not inconceivable, to say the least, that a administrator would say, so Dr. Zach, we've now enabled you to see a patient and you don't have to spend that extra hour a day writing clinical notes. Why don't you see more patients? Right. And and I could see that very well happening. And so the hope for sort of expansion of human contact, of interaction could very well not be fulfilled just because the bottom line for these large healthcare systems does in the end drive everything. Yeah. And I think these winters were people realizing that whatever path they were taking plateaued and that we couldn't really go any further with the current method. That's kind of what I'm worrying about because now people also set the bar higher and higher. Our bar today is not like identification of a disease or even a kind of treatment. Our bar is like humanity. Yeah. And so uh, one of the things I'm worrying about is like, do we hit a winter where 
our current approach gets us really far to do really exciting things, just as machine learning 10 years ago was already doing exciting things, but maybe we just fall short of AGI and that we have to do a different approach. I mean, where do you see our current path going? Uh, does it get us to AGI? Do we have to do something radically different, would you guess? I'm going to try to do my best to step away from the term AGI okay. and, and just ask, will the performance be such that it's going to be as good as an average doctor, or if you want to be rigorous, better than an average doctor, just better than 50% of doctors. And I think that's a bar that's achievable today, frankly. I always like to uh, remind the hoary, terrible joke, what do you call the person who graduated at the bottom of their medical school class? The answer is doctor. Oh. And the bottom 50% are the bottom 50%. And do I think we can do as well and better than them? Yes, I do believe we can. I already want to start putting my bets of where I think we're going to have the most impact. So right now, medicine is very, very highly regulated and very much captured. And to get care, you have to be in a hospital or see someone related to a hospital, by and large. Primary care, which is absent in most countries. China doesn't have primary care. India does not have primary care. But even in what I would argue the mecca of medicine, Boston, Massachusetts, it's very hard, almost impossible. I can't find for my faculty primary care doctors. And so that model is disappearing. And in the disappearance of that model, other models are going to take place. And I do think that there are some big triangulation of two big trends will inform where we'll be five to 10 years from now. And then just put the, the common sense of a human in a loop who has not as many pretensions as a doctor, but just as good bedside manner and actually a lot of clinical experience like a nurse practitioner. Well, you make a good point because if you think about what are the key elements that created AI just broadly that we have today, you could point to algorithms, you could point to compute, or you could point to data. But, you know, if you had the algorithms and the compute, but not the data, you still don't have anything that we have today. And if you think about the algorithms, they're pretty significant, but they're so much shaped by the fact that we have the compute and the data. And that in principle, I think this could have been accelerated if the, the two were there. And so, yeah, your point that the data for healthcare is available because of medical records, that's particularly intriguing and, and suggests that that probably is one of the biggest why now elements. If that is the whole shooting match right now. So if you ask me, what is the big, big battle? It's, a, it's between the EHR vendors who are going to try to lock it all down and become the platform for access to patient data. And they're going to make the deals with OpenAI or Microsoft or Google or any of the other large companies on the one hand. And then there are going to be another set of companies which are going to be much more nimble and frankly, much, much less of a legacy technology tale and less, uh, less having to worry about the details of these complex organizations called hospitals that have all these workflows. And these workflows are important to running the hospitals, but they're not relevant to the health of a patient. So these EHRs, not just data reporting, I think they're ERPs, uh, they're enterprise software packages to run the hospital basically, and then to generate billing codes. So if you have all the data, you don't care so much about running the hospital. You can leave that to be uh, a, rot a slowly rotting legacy business. 
But if you can actually have enough of the data of the patient, then you can focus on having a real customer-oriented experience and sort of bring the patient relationship into the 21st century, where we expect basically consumer-facing companies to meet us in our home. Yes. I like to call this the, the, the flipped clinic. Instead of having everything about the hospital, we'll say, yes, there's some important data that could only be acquired through a hospital. We're going to include those. But in the end, the day-to-day -day interactions with me don't have to be in the hospital. I don't need a hospital visit. And it's, it's almost bypassing the telehealth issue. It's saying, we're going to have a few quarterbacks out there. We're going to have a bunch of large language models binding the store, but we're going to have the common sense of the nurse practitioner or the physician assistant. And we're going to use uh, patients and, frankly, the extended family as part of that. You know, if I want to include my kids or my uh, siblings, they can have access and they can be part of that knowledge community that includes this large language model at its core. For example, that's uh, very appealing, and I think naturally brings us from the past, present to the near future. I mean, maybe we could run through a few possible areas there that there could be impacts. Yeah, so I do. I do want to say that I would not bet on a company as I described in the next two to three years, because for the next two to three years, the EHR companies will say we've got the data, we've got we've got a captive provider and patient audience. You're going to need to work with us, and that's what people will do. Yeah. Well, let, let's go to like perhaps maybe in on the life science side, what is some of the very biggest costs in developing therapeutics like clinical trials? You know, how do you see AI affecting that area, let's say over the next five, 10 years? Yeah, it's fairly straightforward to say that large language models go now they can go literally can do something that used to be require a army of research assistants. Namely, now you can read through if you're if you're given access, read through millions of patients' records and say, which of these qualify for the following 20 trials or 30 trials in clinicaltotrials.gov or in, if I'm a CRO, with the pharma com companies I work with. Literally reading the notes and say, which of them have heart failure, are male, above age this and this, are not on this drug, are on this drug, and can criteria, and do it such that the possible predictive value, or in plain English, the chance that the patient that you select is, in fact, the patient that you want to enroll is high enough to work, make it cost effective to reach out to that patient. That's going to happen because that's allowing you to scale up. It's massive scale up. Also, just the, the running of these trials is hugely bureaucratic. And so, for example, the consent, yes, you can give a, a consent, and, but people rarely fully understand it, and they often have a lot of questions. Here, you can actually have put a large language model in front of the consent. So you can ask all the questions like, if, I'm, if I end up being uh, in the controls, uh, do I get any medication? Do I get any benefit? And it'll tell you. So there's a whole infrastructure, currently people-based, that you could actually replace. And you're going to have to figure out how to do it in ways that are uh, not violating anybody's trust. But unfortunately or fortunately, with his dollars, people are going to find a way. But I do think that the other cost of, of trials, which is betting on the right compound or the right drug at every point, namely at the preclinical selection, at the phase one selection, phase two, and phase three, each of those right now 
as much as you, as we are told that uh, a lot of thought goes into it, if you look at all those decisions, they are still very idiosyncratic decisions, very much depending on what a particular executive or set of executives know or believe or have hunches about. And if you can surround each of those steps with knowledge of, well, there might be some other targets of this based on the you know next generation of alpha fold. Or if you say in both mice for this drug and in humans for related drugs, we're seeing this class of side effects. Mm -hmm. So that even though it's at a low enough rate, so you're gonna not see it in phase one, it could very well happen in phase two, you may wanna pick something else. And so I think that A, running clinical trials efficiently is a slam dunk for these uh, for these new technologies. But I do think that there's going to be much faster than we think a uh, crossing of the chasm between the large language models, which are informed by human language as found on the internet and other places, and these large foundation models, some of which in, in a very real sense are, are themselves language models. I mean, AlphaFold, most of it is the language of the sequence of amino acids. It has a bit of uh, molecular dynamics. It has a bit of evolutionary uh, constraints, but a lot of it is just the language of the order of. So there, the, those two, those two foundation models are reached across one another, so that you're be able to make early decisions about the drug that has the best structure, function, and kinetics uh, and affinity as well as least likely to cause adverse events and have the most on-target effects. I, I think that is going to happen. I think not a matter of 10 to 20 years. It's more like three to seven years. You know, here's the thing about clinical trials, which really gets me excited, is that it's obviously a huge expense and a huge disappointment when these things fail. But it's also a place where we're making modest improvements, like 10% improvements or, or one-month speed-ups could be a huge amount of money. 10% could be $100 million. One month could be $100 million. And this is where I was always very jealous because when we were using AI, let's say, speed up finding leads, you know, speeding that up by a month, that really nobody cares about that yeah, uh, very much. Right. And whereas like my friends at Google 20 years ago were improving the algorithm by 5% and that was $100 million or something like that. Maybe not 20 years ago, but at least 10 years ago. And I think we're getting to that point in AI for healthcare, at least on the clinical trial side. But I don't think there's any companies we can point to, obviously, yet. But the opportunity is right there. So it's a natural place for the future. I mean, if we're going to sort of talk future and sort of fantasize a little bit, what would it take where maybe we actually say that, look, phase one is obviously very important. We don't want to put anything out that's toxic. Phase two is also important. We want to have some evidence of efficacy. But even in phase three, we might not be powered enough to see all the things we want. Is there a world where we go from phase two directly to real world evidence? And we put this out there and payers are going to decide whether they want to reimburse thing, this thing anyways, based on data. And so is the real world evidence actually more relevant than a phase three? Is there a world where AI could facilitate that? Because that would obviously bring down cost and, and, and increase speed dramatically. Because of my involvement in the Undiagnosed Disease Network, I'm very aware that a lot of these rare disease trials essentially are never more than phase two trials. Because by, by the nature, they're very small. And 
some of the real world ev evidence they use are things like diaries of the patients. And so I do think there is an opportunity to jump from phase two to a phase three and a half, somewhere to the phase three and post-marketing surveillance. But I think that there's a non-technical issue that's absolutely rate limiting, which is to have a regulatory system that is very, very willing to turn the clock back. You have to be ready to say, you know what? We're seeing an, enough adverse events or poor enough efficacy that we would have never approved this in the first place if we knew this, and then just switched off. So there's a, it has to be a certain amount of political will to do that. And the United Kingdom has done it with its uh, NICE system, where they actually say, we're, you know, we'll take this on, but if it actually has the efficacy and cost profile that you claim, then we'll keep it on. But if it doesn't, we're going to tell you we'll switch it off. So the notion of going from a phase two to a phase three and a half, I think does get enabled by AI using real world data, but only if we're genuinely willing to turn the clock back if things don't turn out. Well, let's turn to another topic that I, I know is also dear to your heart. How do you see AI playing in, in the clinic with, let's say, um, its impact on our ability to do precision medicine? One of the uh, less appreciated things that these large language models actually can do, but certainly can do with old school machine learning, is to actually look at populations and find their underlying heterogeneity. And that is finding subgroups that themselves are homogeneous and therefore probably are distinct diagnoses. Examples of this, autism, where autism can range from a poor individual who cannot speak, cannot talk, and is sitting in the corner doing repetitive movements, to some high-flying nerds who are awards of Silicon Valley. And that does not look to me like the same disease. And sure, and sure enough, when we took a large cohort of patients identifying through real-world data across multiple electronic health record systems. And we applied basic clustering strategies to these. We found a subgroup who had immunological problems, a subgroup who had synaptic problems, had more in the way of uh, uh, seizures, another group that had uh, psychiatric problems. And what was amazing about that is, A, we had so many grateful parents coming to us when we published this because we were recognizing syndromes within this large envelope that doctors were just treating as it's one and the same thing. So for example, if a child complains and they don't have autism of abdominal pain, they say, mommy, my tummy hurts. And then you get a big workup if it's, if it's happening all the time. But if a kid with autism who can't speak has abdominal pain, they act out yeah. and, what, what's, yeah. and what's given to them? Major, major antipsychotics. Why? Because it quiets them down. So you're actually not taking away, you're not taking away the pain. You just, and I think that what we're seeing, just as we saw with cancer, cancer is probably the most successful precision medicine example. We've sub fractionated to different types of lung cancer, for example, and breast cancer, where the treatment, if you have one subtype, is very different than the other subtype. And I think you're going to see this happening for diabetes, obesity, major depression, a variety of psychiatric diseases and the inflammatory diseases. Right now, we're treating them as one uh, unified monolithic diagnosis. And then we ask ourselves, why did one patient respond to therapy and the other did not? And we just shake our heads and we say, the, the 
the get out of jail card in medicine, idiopathic or idiosyncratic response, which means I don't know why the hell patient didn't respond. Turns out there's often many, many good reasons. And uh, some of them are biological, some of them are social, some are environmental. And I think that by paying attention to all those real world data in the systematic way that we can with these large machine learning programs, we'll be able to actually help these patients. Those are, I think, two really powerful examples of where we could get to. How do we get there? You've got the existing tech incumbents, you've got academia, you've got pharma and payers and providers. You've got a lot of players in healthcare. I will show my cards by saying that although I think academia can be a very good incubator of ideas, it's not a place to uh, roll out solutions that impact the world. I have to say that increasingly it's become clear to me that the compute is going to become commodity. The algorithms, also commodity. And it's going to come down to basically two distinguishing uh, modes. One is going to be which data use to train it, and then which data is it going to run on. So which data used to train on? We do know that all things being equal, it's better to have larger scale. But we also know that all things being equal, it's better to have higher quality data as well. So the best thing you want is the, the highest scale and the best quality data. But I think the real issue is going to be about economic incentives that are going to push us towards the best possible training sources and the most comprehensive views of patients. The companies that can bring those two together are going to be the cat bird seat. It's, it's a tall order, but there are some companies that can pull it off. So I want to sort of get a little bit uh, to the time to pick your brain about the far future. Where do you think we are in 10 or 20 years with this? Uh, how has the world changed? What are we talking about? So I'm going to stipulate that I'm going to stick to the cup half full version because okay. there's too many people are having too much fun with dystopia versions of it. And yes. it's it's easier to come up with dystopia scenarios than with, with the- There's certainly a lot more science fiction to draw upon uh, to help you with that if you need it. Yeah. Right. So the first piece of good news is the intuition that because I was surprised, like so many others, by the performance of large language models, I don't know what technology is. There may be a, we might hit a wall with where we can get to transformers, but- I am now willing to believe that the combination of what we have today, plus some incremental improvements, or maybe unexpected, but even without the unexpected quantum improvements, will get us to a place where I do think that it's quite reasonable to expect. Again, in a non-dystopian system, you and I will both have software agents that are distributed across multiple systems, but they're looking out for VJ. They're looking out for Zach. They figured out how to best nag us about uh, <laughs> various uh, lifestyle things and encourage us, right? Encourage. Like, like, oh, that was great. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, I, but but what's what's more, VJ and Zach have different psychological levers. You know, maybe there's someone in your family that you need to they'll and they'll know about that, and they'll say they'll say to Zach, "Yep, you, you know, you want to look good for that photo shoot." Well, <laughs> and they'll know also. You know, they'll know your genomics. So I think it'll be much the non-dystopian versions. It will be precision medicine. It will be highly customized. It'll know you. It'll know a lot of your life. The things that we imagined our family doctor knew about us and our family 30 years ago 
it will actually know because he'll have access to it. Yeah, that uh, is a very powerful sort of framework because that is also hopefully not just curing us when we get ill, but keeping us healthy uh, for far longer. And it's so much easier to prevent, as we well know. With that, well, thank you so much for being on Bioweeds World. Vijay, great to see you again. Thank you for joining Bioweeds World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld at a16z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. Please note that A16Z and its affiliates may maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments, please see a16z.com disclosures.